It's so good to see each and every person assembled at this place this morning. It's a delightful thing that we can begin every week the same way, consistently desiring to offer worship and praise and homage to the great God of heaven who made us. And each of us today can be so expressly thankful for many things in our life that are so well, and for us who are Christians to appreciate forgiveness of sins and the ability to stand before the God of heaven sanctified and justified. This morning for our lesson, you may have noted the title, Making Havoc of the Church. In fact, as Brother Mike read that a moment ago from Acts 8 verse 3, that very phrase was found there. And you and I are going to make an application of that this morning that I hope will be a moving and helpful thing to each and every one of us as we strive to live in a way to please God. This introductory slide will be one that will motivate us or at least set the stage for, for our discussion this morning. The church is the greatest institution the world has ever known because, quite frankly, you can't go to heaven without it. In Ephesians 5, verse 23, Jesus is the Savior of the body, and the body is the church, Ephesians 1, tells us. And so, if I'm not a member of the church, it doesn't matter what else may be said about me, I'm lost. And as you and I then consider the nature of the church, the Lord loved it so much He died on the cross to make it so. Jesus died shedding His blood. In Acts 20, 28, we read, as the elders of the church in Ephesus were addressed, Take heed to yourselves and to the church over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God which He hath purchased with His own blood. The Lord bought it. Its purchasing price was His blood. You and I then must appreciate the church is so special, so great, so necessary, so vital. It is with that in mind, wouldn't it be a tragic thing to think about making havoc of the church? That word havoc means to stir it up, to trouble it. In fact, you may notice on that slide, that word literally in the Greek means to devastate. It literally has the thought of doing great harm. Now it's so in that text of Acts 8 verse 3, the context had to do with Saul. On that occasion, before he had obeyed the gospel... He, in fact, had letters and he did all that was in his power to hurt the church, to devastate it. He wanted to see it destroyed. Now, you and I know today that there still are a lot of people in our world who don't think much of the church. They don't appreciate what we stand for. They certainly don't appreciate the Word of God that we take as the inerrant, infallible, authoritative message from heaven but may I suggest there are some other things that you and I as Christians, individuals, there are things you and I can do. At the bottom, could I ask you to ponder this question? If you were the devil, what would you do to destroy the church? Now you and I know that he will never be successful in absolutely destroying it for the ancient writer Daniel said it will stand till the end of time. But if you were the devil, what things would you do that would cause it to be less effective, that would cause the church to, let's say, be rather powerless? The devil, after all, is one who is very, very clever, and he's very subtle. This next slide is going to lead us on our journey. For let me suggest there's a handful of things that I suppose we could quickly mention 
And there's no doubt about it based on the New Testament reading that the devil employs these tactics. He brings them immediately for in temptational ways before you and me. And as Christians, we must be aware of them. Let's look at them, and I put them in no particular order. But wouldn't it be true that one of the things that the devil surely would strive to do is to give the church this viewpoint of being a rather selfish, uncaring group of people? If he can ever get that point across, and if the Christians behave in such a way characteristic of that, that church is not going to be very evangelistic. It's not going to be very encouraging to those of who that are members of it. Let's develop some of those points like this. In Ephesians 5.25, Husbands there were told, Love your wives, as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for it. Now, it's true that as He addressed that thought to husbands, we notice almost as a side point, but how vital it is Jesus loved the church. And not only did He love it, you'll notice that He commands His church to express love, to be people who care about one another, to be people who, in fact, are motivated with a genuine sense of welfare for those whom, of course, are our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and even those who may be outside that fellowship. To develop that point, look at John 13, 34. As the Lord made these statements to His disciples, now this is right before He Himself died, but He said, "...by this shall all men know that you're My disciples, if ye have loved one for another." The litmus test that was to display to that community and yea, to the world at large that they were in fact Christians was the degree to which they loved one another. But that hadn't changed. Look at that next passage at 1 Peter 1.22. Although we're committed to the Word of God, we express it by demonstration, by virtue of our love one for another. That's what Peter wrote. To that we might add 2 Peter 1.6 and 1 John 3.16 both of which remind us of this point that we have already emphasized so easily. So wouldn't it be true that one of the things the devil could do, sprinkle amongst that church a rather selfish, uncaring attitude, because if that becomes rather widespread again, that church will be rather ineffective. It'll be a group of people who, though they assemble, their message will not be terribly meaningful for individuals will see that what they preach is not the same thing as how they live. As you and I recognize some of the latter parts on that slide, one of the things the New Testament says about love, it doesn't sink its own. Love isn't selfish. 1 Corinthians 13.5 it's easy to see that though the world at large in many cases may not know a lot about the details of the Bible, they know hypocrisy when they see it. And they know a people who aren't committed to what they claim to be committed to. And surely the devil could well use selfishness if he wants to make a given congregation ineffective, if he wants to make them rather powerless. Let's journey near the bottom of that slide. How often does the Bible encourage you and I to be individuals who are committed to humility? Colossians 3, verses 12 and 13. So much so, we forbear one another, we forgive one another, and we're anxious to ever do that. But yet, if we don't care about one another, then we're going to hold grudges and we're not going to be very willing to forgive. And that's not the kind of heart and disposition the Bible encourages of us, is it? 
Surely one of the things the devil could do, sprinkle a little bit of selfishness and some uncaring attitude in that congregation. May we here at Pippin remain strong, fortified in the things of the truth, and ever keep uncaring and selfish dispositions at bay. What else might the devil do? What else could he do to strive to wreak havoc? May I suggest this one. As far as an overt and easily discernible matter, isn't it true? Put a little immorality in that congregation. Some of the points I have there, let's develop them. Again, allowing the Word of God to be our guide. The first point, the church of our Lord clings uncompromisingly to the high moral and ethical standards that are taught in the Bible. Let me say that again. The church of our Lord clings unwaveringly to the high moral and ethical standards of truth. So surely one of the things the devil then could do, sprinkle a little immorality in that church where the men or the women begin to act or at least to uphold things that are immoral, to support and encourage or at least not oppose that which isn't right. You'll note near the top of that slide, there's a strong statement given in Ephesians 5, verse 3. May I invite you to note it with me? As Paul addressed the church in Ephesus, these are the words he wrote. But fornication and all uncleanness, may I ask how much uncleanness? He said all. Or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become a saint's. The lives of Christians ought to be sufficiently high, ethical, and moral that it would not even cross the mind of anybody who knows them to ponder they may be at least considering immorality. It ought not even be named among us. That was true of them then. It must be true of us now. And so surely one of the things the devil could do, put a little immorality in the mind of some of those people. And let me say, not only put it there, but allow them to be given to it. Now, as you and I give some thoughts to that, notice 1 Peter 2.11. Abstain from all fleshly lusts which war against, the stole, war against the soul. I realize that we live in a day and time much different than the actual circumstances of that first century. Now notice, those though were told, don't even allow fleshly lust to be something that you pursue. Don't even allow it to cross your mind. Think about the kind of society in which we have now come. You know, there was a time, oh, 25, 30, 40 years ago or so, when we all recognized that if you wanted to see nude pictures, you had to go and buy some kind of a magazine. Now, flip up your phone. You can go to websites that show you pornography. In the silence and in the pureness of your own house, nobody else may even know it. You could even conceal it from your family members. Open up your laptop. You can peruse all kinds of filth as much as you want to. And the point is, the devil has a heyday. In as much as, here's a person on Sunday that claims to be a Christian. And others, at least some, perceive him or her to be so. But look at what he's doing on Monday night. Look at what she's doing on Friday morning, right as soon as she gets to work, before anybody else gets there. Point is, the devil is easily able to attack us. And all he's got to do 
is sprinkle a little immorality. Because as soon as I'm given to it, it will start changing the way I think. It'll change the way I behave. It'll change the way I view the church. And it'll change my status of being saved. And I'll soon begin to live in a way that may affect others. And they may begin to wonder, well, maybe that style of life isn't so bad. Point is, it grows gradually. And all the devil's got to do to wreak havoc is just to spread a little immorality. Let's look further on that slide. The church suffers greatly when there's sin in the camp. I listed an Old Testament example, but we'll look at a New Testament one in a moment. But you recall the circumstance when Joshua, he was in fact praying earnestly that the, the army had just lost at the little town of Ai. And Joshua couldn't, didn't understand why. He fell on his face, prayed unto God, and God said, Joshua, get up. They're sin in the camp. You see, somebody in Israel, and notice it was only one man, Achan, but one man in Israel had chosen to follow things that God had not commanded. In fact, he disobeyed God, and Israel suffered. Today, may every one of us appreciate the fact that we, for instance, here at Pippin, are the Pippin Church of Christ. We're the family of God at this location. And if one of us is given to immorality, everybody else is going to suffer. Because we each stand for the trueness and the faithfulness and the rightness of the truth of God. And if I forfeit it, and I live in such a way that it brings a black eye on this congregation, all of us, and sadly, the greatest of all, the cause of Christ suffers. And thus... One of the things the devil can do, sprinkle a little immorality in. In 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, we have an example there as well as that text in 1 Corinthians 5 when the church in Corinth, of course, when there was that man living in fornication. Paul said, you've got to do something. That man's lost. You've got to withdraw from him. Now, you do that for two reasons. One, that he might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. He may come to his senses, repent of that error, and understand that this congregation loves him. But secondly, a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. If you let this go on unchecked, that kind of behavior will soon become acceptable, or at least it will not be looked upon as wrong. And others may fall to the same kind of behavior. The point is the church must be kept pure. And aren't we thankful for those teachings of the Bible that give us that impression? For we love purity. Isn't it so that for the most part we demand purity in things of life? We demand pure water. You go to the grocery store or other places and we demand our food be uncontaminated. Are we willing to accept impurities and contaminants in our life? May it never be. What else might the devil do in addition to sprinkling some immorality or maybe even some selfishness? What about a third one? May I suggest one other tactic that he can use to great effectiveness? Suppose he makes use of disrespect. Disrespect. Let's develop that in the following way. And may I say the devil again has a shed full of tools that he likes to use and so far as we've looked at these two, maybe it brings us to this one. One of the things that we can say for certainty is, it is the plan of God that the church be mindful of 
and respectful of authority. In every avenue of life in which that authority appears. Isn't it so? Jesus is the head of the church. Colossians 1.18 And there is no other foundation but Him. 1 Corinthians 3.11 Inasmuch then as the Master is that head, is it true that we should respect Him, honor Him, we serve in His kingdom. And so one of the things that he might, the devil might do, let's bring a little disrespect for something Jesus has taught. Most people, I suspect, would never overtly say that they don't respect Jesus, but what about the things Jesus has taught? Well, you'll notice several things on that slide. Perhaps the first of which is, the members of the church are told in Romans 12.10, they should have a degree of respect for one another. Now that builds to some extent upon the nature of that matter of a caring disposition, I know. But there it says you're in honor to prefer one another. May you and I strive to uphold that reality because when we assemble and when we appreciate membership in this family, these are the very people we're planning to go to heaven with. These are the very people who we expect that shall be present on that great day in which it will be said, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Matthew 25, 21. But at that point, if we don't respect one another, that is to respect the roles that each occupies and to respect the thing for which each one has been given operation by God. Maybe some explicit examples. We know that in the orderliness of the way God has done things, there are elders and deacons. Now the roles of each are different. The elders have been charged by God to oversee. They are the shepherds of the congregation. We, of course, must respect the place that they have, so much so that we're told to obey them that have the rule over us. Hebrews thirteen seventeen. As you and I think then about that degree of respect, we know, of course, the elders must respect their obligation to be those overseers, to watch with care for the souls of those who are the members of the congregation. One thing the devil could do, sprinkle a little disrespect among the membership or among the elders so that they aren't respectful of those roles they've been given. That church will almost guaranteed be rather ineffective. Not only that, look near the bottom of that slide. As you think about the members and the elders in particular, as they have a degree of respect for the roles that God has given each one. That certainly includes also the preacher. That includes any other person, any other member. As God has spoken to each of us and given us these particulars, am I dutifully respectful of that which God has taught in the New Testament? Or do I overtly refuse to listen to what the elders say? I don't care what they say. If I do that, then I'm sinning against God because we're told again to obey them. And he didn't couch that in qualified language. Obey them only if you want to. Obey them only if you find it convenient. He said obey them, Hebrews 13, 17. As they that give account, as they that watch for your souls. Well, suppose we turn that around again. Suppose an elder, though mindful of those qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, 
and mindful of the duties given. Suppose an elder chooses to not be respectful of what he is supposed to do. We can easily see the point. That church, again, will suffer mightily. Aren't we thankful for these statements that tell us what each of us are to do? And the deacons, they too are given responsibilities in 1 Timothy 3, as well as Acts chapter 6. The degree of disrespect that we've seen at least housed in some of these ways, doesn't it remind you of what the tendencies of our society can sometimes be? We understand that there's a great deal of emphasis upon, it's my right to do this and nobody has the right to tell me different. No Christian's going to feel that way. In fact, we longingly desire to be a part of a family who, cons- who is concerned enough about me and who cares enough about me that will tell me when I'm wrong. That's one of the greatest and most fantastic expositions in all the Bible. May we be so blunt and direct as to say, in this family, if any of us as Christians begin to proceed along a way that's not right, to begin to develop habits or ways of life that aren't good, please, please, everybody in strong unison, help make sure you reel that person back in. We don't want anybody to be lost. If I begin to, again, do those things that aren't right, Maybe even the elders aren't seeing it, but if someone here sees it, you come and talk to me. In Matthew 18, if a brother has wronged you, you go and you talk to him one-on-one. You share with him what he has done. Maybe he doesn't even realize it. If he repents, you've won your brother. If he doesn't, then you take a couple of witnesses and again, you share with that person what your perception is and why it's not good. If he repents, you've won your brother. If he does it, you bring it to the church. Now at this point, the church, in as much as it has a part in this, again, your goal is to save this individual. If he won't listen, sadly enough, you've got to withdraw fellowship. We understand what a very emotional thing that is. But one more time, if he does listen, you've won your brother. It's our goal to appreciate that the family of God is a strong and unified thing bound together by the blood of Jesus Christ where we desire to encourage, to exhort, to provoke each other along that pathway that leads to everlasting life. And if one of us steps off the path, the rest of us ought to in great earnestness strive to bring that person back on the path. That's what the church is all about. At that point, as you close that slide, notice we're respecting then in that way what the Bible has taught, and we're also respecting the way it's to be done. Fourthly, may I say one of the things the devil could surely do if he wished to wreak havoc on the church, compromise. Compromise. You'll notice at the the top, the church of our Lord is described in the Bible as the pillar and ground of the truth, 1 Timothy 3.15. It again is the pillar. That means the sturdiness upon which the fullness is built. It's the pillar and the absolute ground of the truth. As the church then is that entity 
it is so that some of these next slides come quickly before us. You and I know the truth is the Word of God. John 17, 17 says, Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. Putting those two passages together then, the church as the pillar and ground of the truth is the bedrock not only built upon this word, but the very entity that proclaims it. One thing the devil could surely do if he wished to wreak havoc on that congregation. Put some compromise among them to where they aren't very committed to this book. They're willing to entertain their own speculations and their own opinions. They just aren't that committed to it. It's for sure it won't be long. A very few years at most. And that church will die a slow and painful death. You'll notice on that slide, there's all kinds of things that the human family has wrestled and chosen to talk about when the Bible makes on the whole relatively plain. Are we going to listen to what men may say or are we going to listen to what God says? On subjects like the plan of salvation, the essentiality of worship, women's roles in the church, the nature of angels and the Holy Spirit, just to mention a few. The church is not going to compromise on the truth of God. And you and I appreciate that the devil has had a very strong and emphatic approach in so many places throughout the decades by allowing people to compromise and putting seeds of compromise in their behavior. You and I continue to see that. And isn't it so that we have the following warning in 2 John 9? May I invite you to note the strength of this language? One chapter book, 2 John, verse number 9. John in writing said this, Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him God's speed is partaker of his evil deeds. So an individual who feels as though compromise on some areas is appropriate. When in fact the Word of God is plain, they come to us and maybe even they encourage us with strong and elaborate language. We can't extend to him an element, an appreciation, if you please, a fellowship, because God says if we do, we're just as guilty as he is. The fellowship of the church is a closely guarded entity. That text in 2 John 9 brings me to the next one. In 1 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul expressly told those brethren there, you must never, ever go beyond what's written. Therefore, we aren't in the business of speculating and going beyond the Word of God. We simply want to do what God says, the way He says it, for the reason He says it. And know for sure, of course, that that's what he wants. One last thing on that slide. If you were the devil, don't you suppose that this issue and compromise would be one thing that you would use as a tactic to harm the church, to devastate it? Oh, I think without a doubt. Today, as we have looked at these four elements... I'm sure you can think of other particulars, but likely they may fall as a particular example beneath one of these four. 
Let's close our lesson like this. It is a tragedy. It is genuinely a tragedy to think about wreaking havoc of the church. For Jesus died to establish it. And it's the only group that's going to go to heaven, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 tells us. And it's the very group that we notice described in the closing chapters of Revelation. John, what do you see right in the book? And John saw the beautiful city come out of heaven. That's his description of the church. And he sees this group of people who, as the saints, they are now in a place where there's no pain, no sorrow, no crying, no defilement in any form. That text in Revelation 21.4 is to be contrasted to Revelation 21.8. For here are those who are guilty of things like lying, guilty of things like fornication, guilty of things like idolatry. John, where are they? And John is quick to say, they're not where the first group was. This group's in a lake burning with fire and brimstone. This group is in a place that's without comfort. It's a place without any pleasantness at all. It's a place where the devil is. So the very one who is trying to hurt the church is going to end up in a place like that, and all of those who followed his guidelines are going to be there with him. It's our goal, of course, at Pippin, to never fall victim to his plan. I'd like to close the lesson with this unforgettable passage. In 2 Corinthians 2.11, it says, The devil has made devices. And we're not ignorant of them. Now that word devices means he has a plan. May I suggest to you the devil is not haphazard. It's not as if he just waits and does something to the Pippin congregation, hoping it's work. He's got a plan. Sowing some thoughts, sowing some ideas, and it may not germinate and bring forth fruit for five, six, seven years down the road, but he's got a plan. And he knows if he can sow the right seed and we allow it to grow, he's going to hurt this church. He's going to devastate it if he has his way. We've got to be strong. We've got to be fortified in the truth of God. And we've got to keep at bay these four things we've studied about today. Selfishness, immorality, disrespect, and compromise. They have no part in the life of a Christian. Because we're committed to the truth. And we're committed to doing what God says. As we close this lesson, we offer an invitation. Because the Bible would make this statement, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. If you're living in sin at the moment, that is to say you've never become a Christian, but you know Jesus died for you. You know that He purchased the church with His blood. And you know that there's only one way to heaven, John 14, 6 and you know you're not traveling it, then why do you wait? Why do you delay? Jesus would be so excited to welcome you into His, into his fellowship, to add you to His church, and to in invite you to appreciate the encouragement of faithfulness. If you have become that Christian, as you obeyed the gospel in belief, confession, repentance, and baptism, but maybe you haven't been faithful, Maybe you've allowed disrespect or compromise or immorality or maybe even the issues of selfishness to become part of your life. Let me say, Jesus still loves you. Even though you have sinned against Him, He still loves you. 
even though you've turned your back upon Him and almost proverbially said, I don't care what you did, He still loves you. And He would welcome you home with all the excitement that He has available to Him. And we here at the Pippin Church would love to do the same. May I say, if you have been guilty of these sins and you wish to be forgiven of it, just do what the Lord says. You've got to repent of them. You've got to confess them. And you've got to approach by way of faithful brethren to Him in prayer. Confess your faults one to another. And pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. If we could help you today, it'd be our desire, it'd be our excitement. And we'd like to celebrate with you. But you've got to make that decision. If we could help you do that today, this hymn of encouragement has been selected. And right now would be an opportune time to come. Would you not do that if you would wish to while together we stand and while we sing?